You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou We will be spending a couple of weeks on this very gospel text. The uh, gospel text each week will remain the same for a little while because we're going to go through it very slowly. My people who come to my Tuesday Bible study are familiar with how slowly I can go through Scripture. So, um, but pay attention to the readings around it because they're going to help illuminate um, the meaning we're getting at in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You probably noticed the prominence of the word righteous and righteousness in our other readings of Scripture. We're going to be focusing on really just the first verse of today's Gospel reading today. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So before we do that, let us pray. Lord, we hear these fearful words. The kingdom of heaven is what we desperately wish to enter, and you have proclaimed to us at the very beginning of this sermon, of which our text today is a part, that that kingdom is at hand, so near we can reach out and touch it. Lord, we pray as we reflect on your words this day that you would bring us to a right understanding of their meaning. Let our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let us enter into the kingdom of heaven through your word. And through our trust in you, Jesus, who give it to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to spend so much time focusing on one verse because this verse is going to lay the foundation for what is to come. The section called the Antitheses, where Jesus says, You have heard it said that I, but I tell you this instead. There are six of these. And it's going to lay out the foundation, what what Jesus says in this first verse. So we're going to spend some time with it. The section that is about to be introduced, those six antitheses, are going to detail for us what righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees looks like. So we want to pay attention. Now righteousness in particular is a word we want to pay attention to in the middle of it. And it's not a word that we're very familiar with. In fact, it's a word you never hear outside of church in our culture. I was straining my memory to find one example of the word righteousness used outside of church. And I finally found one. I think my daughter reminded me of it, as she will do. Um, For those of you who've seen the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, it's in the second Thor movie. The bad guy, Loki, is a shapeshifter. He takes on the form of Captain America. He says, ooh, I can feel the righteousness just surging through me. He's making fun of it. So the only time I can think of righteousness is, is it's when it's being made fun of. So we want to pause and reflect on that word for a few minutes. The word in Greek here is dikaiosune. 
It's a significant word, and it's foundational for our understanding, not just of Jesus' words in this sermon or in this gospel, but for our whole understanding of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole. It's the noun form of the verb that we translate as justify, as in justification, to make righteous, to put in a right covenantal relationship with God. To catch the significance in English, rather than translating the word as righteous, you'd need to translate it as something like justifiedness or justness, unless your justness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees. To put in a right covenantal relationship with God. When we say that we are saved by grace through faith, quoting Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're saying that God declares us righteous when we are not. Because the great righteousness of His Son is applied to us. And we trust in that righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. We have faith in Christ's righteousness to save us. Christ alone is righteous in and of Himself. And not to put too fine a point on it, but as I did a word study throughout both Testaments, to be a righteous person is to be the kind of person whom God saves. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? He who is righteous. Well, Jesus is the only one who has that naturally and inborn. But Christ will first share it with us by uniting us to Himself, as we just heard from the book of Romans. And then He will indwell us so that His righteous life is inside of us and part of us and united to our own. Now this union with Christ is an emphasis all through the church fathers. Last week I said in my sermon that Jesus is not going to establish a new law for us to live by, but rather give us a new life to live from. His life indwelling us through the power of the Spirit. This is why Peter would write in his epistle, His, that is Christ's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You become a partaker of the divine nature. The only place we use the word partake in common English parlance is when you partake of a food. It's there and we drink from it. We drink from the the divine nature of Christ that He has given to us as His gift. And we trust in by faith. Now that we have been given Christ's life, we must learn with the help of Christ Himself through the power of the Spirit the habits of this new form of life that dwells within us. It's habits of the heart in contrast to what seems natural to us as fallen creatures. The Christian faith 
has historically been a religion of transformation, not merely information. In the book of Acts, the early Christians didn't call themselves that. They called themselves followers of the way. And not just the way that Christ taught, but Him who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's only at Antioch that they're first called Christians, and that by other people. Our failure to retain this emphasis is, I am convinced, at least a large part of the reason why Christianity has lost its cultural influence. As we've lost the dimension of experience. When people think of going to some new age retreat, they expect to have experience that will transform them. When they think of coming to church, they expect to hear a lecture on which they'll take notes. Now the Christian faith is structured by information. The good news is just that. Something I can tell you. It's news. But that information is meant to lead to transformation. Because of the kind of information it is. It's information that fundamentally changes us and calls us to action. It's a transformation first and foremost of our eternal destinies when we trust the message. It's a transformation secondarily of our hearts. And then as our hearts are changed, that flows out into our behavior and our habits. And finally, that's going to change our entire experience of life. We've all had, we've all received news that's transformed us in that way. I don't see any real young folk here like we're at the first service, but since I assume most of you remember 9-11, do you remember how quiet America was on September 11th, 2001, around noon? No planes in the sky, no cars on the road, and very little conversation wherever you were as your eyes were riveted to that screen and your consciousness was transformed from being on a peacetime footing to a wartime footing. I'm sure that another generation had that same experience when they heard about the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the transformation the other way when they first VE and then VJ Day happened and the end of the war was proclaimed. You've probably also had that kind of news when you or a loved one has received a diagnosis that changes what your life is going to look like forever. News of a bad medical diagnosis changes not only our mindset, but our habits and and our plans and our heart. I remember when my late sister-in-law was told that she had cancer. She'd been planning a big trip to Europe and she said, all of a sudden I knew I didn't want to be in an art museum in Paris. I wanted to be with my family. Jesus, with the words he's proclaiming to us in this sermon, is after a heart transformation, not merely a head transformation. And this is inherent in Jesus' teaching technique. All through the Gospels, Jesus' teaching technique is aimed at transformation. 
That's why his primary tool of teaching is the parable. Parable is another word you don't hear outside of church very often. It literally means to lay down next to. You take a story and you lay, down, lay it down next to another story or a principle and the two illumine one another. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's meant to capture your imagination and engage it so you begin thinking differently. Someone tells you a rule, you can check off the box and memorize it. Jesus teaches you a parable, you're forever left questioning the state of your own heart, which is exactly what he's aiming at. Think of the parables, and I can probably just name them off if you've been a Christian for any length of time and they'll immediately come to mind. The parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the sower. The parable of the good Samaritan. My professor of, of ethics when I was in seminary said, you know, he, he walked around in his priestly robes all the time and he said, you know, I can't walk past a homeless person in Washington, D.C. where I live and not think, am I the priest who walked by on the other side? How about the parable of the prodigal son? Which of us hasn't that brought hope and comfort to? Or the parable of the sheep and the goats, which brings us a little less hope and makes us question ourselves. This is what Jesus is after. And there's no reason, no reason at all, to believe Jesus is using a fundamentally different teaching method in this, his most extended teaching sermon, than he is anywhere else in the gospel. The only reason to assume that is our assumptions when we come to the text. We assume that sermons are lectures and rules given, so that's what we expect him to do. But that's not what he's doing. In these verses which are to come in the coming weeks, the antitheses, Jesus is laying out illustrations, not a new law for us to follow. He's laying out illustrations, not more stringent dictums. If we fail to understand this, we're going to set up in our minds a new and even more discouraging law because, trust me, it's harder. Some well-intended interpretations of this passage aim to do just that. But an illustration excuse me, is an example, shows an example of a principle in action. It shows us what kingdom life would look like in a given instance to show us the principle being applied, but then it leaves subsequent application of that principle up to the person hearing the story. In other words, the goal of an illustration is not so much changed action as it is a changed actor. We are meant to be changed so that we can in all the vagaries and craziness of life which no rule, set of rules can delineate in detail know how to live as kingdom people. Jesus has already established through the blessings at the beginning of the sermon that he has come to give us a new life with which to live. His own life. Kingdom life. And so these new principles he's going to teach us in the coming six antitheses are things we will have to grasp with that new life. If we try, if we try to live out the teachings Jesus is about to lay on us, or even grapple with whether they make sense or not. From the standpoint of our own natural that is fallen and degraded and sinful thoughts and patterns and habits of mind and heart, 
those things which are given to our, us by our culture, which Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12 is dominated by powers and principalities opposed to God, if we try to do it based in our flesh, as we say, we will forever fail. We'll fail to live an authentic Christian life. And that's a tragedy. Because we're told that the youngest generation in our culture values one thing above all, and that's authenticity. They want to see us walking our talk. If we try to do it in our own strength, we're going to fail. If we learn how to tap into the life that Jesus has given us, learn to cleave to His way of thinking, not our own way of thinking, let our heart be changed to be like His heart, rather than simply try to manage our outward behaviors. That's what we need to do in order to live these way, this way. See, Jesus' principles He's about to teach us are going to seem nonsensical to us from the standpoint of our flesh. We're going to fail not just because we're too weak, but because it don't make, doesn't make sense to us. It can make sense to us only with a transformed mind. Here's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the mind of Christ to grasp the wisdom of what Jesus is about to teach us. Fortunately, 1 Corinthians 2.16 goes on to say, We have the mind of Christ. That's part of the gift of the gospel to us. And we need not only the mind of Christ, but a heart transformed by the love of God in order to want to live the way Jesus is going to teach us to live. Because however much we perceive its wisdom, when we pause for reflection like we're doing for this hour together, the minute we get back out in the world and it starts battering us, our heart's going to want to go the way it's always gone. See, authentic Christian life demonstrates more righteousness than the behavior of the scribes and the Pharisees precisely because it flows from a heart transformed by the indwelling love and righteousness of Christ. Jesus' illustrations that he's going to present in the upcoming section of the Sermon on anger and lust and divorce, making oaths, retaliation, and last and most importantly of all, loving our enemies, they're meant to capture our imaginations in a way that forces us into self-reflection. It makes us do the heavy mental lifting of considering what's going on inside of us, not merely what we're doing outside where everyone else can see it, leaving our hearts untouched. This is what St. Paul is aiming at in our reading today from Romans when he says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. When we look into our hearts and see 
that we do not desire to live the way Jesus is outlining. We know it is time to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As our reading last week said, it's right there. It's on your tongue. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's right there where you can grab it, because that is where Jesus is. If you have come to Him in faith, and when we do repent, He is ready at hand to justify us, to set us right with God, put us in a right covenantal relationship with God, and then transform our hearts by His indwelling love. We're to live as though we have moved from death to life. We got a far more serious diagnosis than then you might be sick. We got one that you're sick unto death and now we have received life. We need to live as though that's true. I want to come and wrap up my sermon by telling you a story that one of my mentors told me. Pastor Ed is a guy who, um, he can lay it on you. <laughs> But he's the kind of guy who would say, thank you, sir, may I have another, when he does. <laughs> um, one of, I, I'm guess, guessing that he honed that skill in one of his calls. In one of his calls, he, um, he served in a predominantly military setting. His Wednesday morning Bible study, his men's Bible study, had five full bird colonels in it. When one of, um, one of his parishioners was quite sick and in the hospital, uh, he was called in to visit, as happens with pastors. And um, this guy was in the hospital again because of his illness. He had diabetes. Now, he was not a brittle diabetic where his blood sugar would jump all over the place regardless of what he did. His was perfectly controllable by lifestyle choices. He simply didn't choose to make those lifestyle choices. When Ed arrived at the hospital, the man's wife met him in the hallway and said, Will you please talk to this stubborn old Marine? So Ed walked in and sat down next to the man's bedside. And the man said to him, said, I know what you're going to say, Pastor. You're going to say the same thing those doctors said. And I'll tell you what. I have lived my whole life my way. And I plan on checking out the same way. Pastor Ed looked at him and said, so you think you'll just have a massive heart attack or a stroke and, and be done? He's like, yep, that's my plan, Pastor. Ed looked at him and said, what if that's not how it goes? What if due to your negligence they have to take you a piece at a time? Is that how you want to go? Pastor Ed wrapped up this story which he told to a whole group of us pastors by saying, he went home and made the pledge. The pledge to change his diet and lifestyle. Ed, through the way he addressed him, finally captured his imagination, transformed his emotions about the diagnosis he had received. And that led to a changed heart and lifestyle. Jesus' teaching is meant to grab our hearts in the same way. Engage our imaginations so that we can apply the kingdom principles He is about to teach us 
in the blessed life for which He has redeemed us. He has justified us, set us in a right relationship with the Father. Now we need to live like that kind of people. Will you join me now for a word of prayer? Lord, it is so, so hard for us to hearken to anybody's ideas but our own. We think we're the own best authority on our lives. Theoretically, we know that you know better, but boy, do we have trouble acknowledging it in our habits and in our heart. We pray. We pray, Lord, that our righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because it's your righteousness. Lord, we know we don't have it in ourselves, but we know you have it and that you've gifted it to us. Grant us, Lord, to not present ourselves to sin so we can be its servant, but rather present ourselves to you who now live within us and to whom we are united. Help us to live from your power and your strength and your spirit in accordance with your word. For that is truly kingdom life. And only in that way can we truly give a witness to you that is faithful. And only in that way can we live a life that is authentic, authentically of the kingdom. Bless us, O Lord, to trust and believe in your righteousness and to live according to your will and in your ways. And this we ask in your name, which is forever Jesus the Christ. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my life.